<laughs> Mark Twain said the definition of a classic is a book everybody wished they would have read. <laughs> I was thinking of Mark Twain, that's why that got me on that. Uh, Mark Twain was in church once, went frequently, check up on people, and uh, the minister got up to take the collection. And so Mark Twain pulled a $5 bill out of his pocket, which was quite a bit at that time. And the preacher kept going on how people should be giving and, and wouldn't stop. And so Mark put the $5 back and took out $1. And the preacher kept going, asking for money. And finally, he says, when the offering plate came around, he stole a quarter out of it. <laughs> Uh, this subject is a very large subject because it is dealing much more with your life than just your money. In fact, I think sometimes we get it backwards. Uh, if we focus only on the money, we miss the main point. Because the point is that God wants the person. If he has the person, he'll have the other things. But we forget that, and it's very easy for some people to sit down and write out a check and feel that that's okay, everything's fine, and yet uh, their commitment, their service, uh, doesn't seem to be a part of it. I think I learned most about stewardship because I was the child of a pastor, and I could hear all the discussions and see all of the meetings and know what was going on certain things that worked well and certain things that didn't work well and uh, and some of the pitfalls. But in studying the Bible, as I began to do in seminary and then in my teaching, the subject is a very, very large subject and I want to lay out some principles here. What you do with them, of course, is up to you, um, but I hope that you will think about them, study them in a lot more detail. So three basic general introduction points I want to make because I think they're important to what we're dealing with here. One is that when I'm talking about stewardship, I'm talking about your life, your talents, your possessions, um, money as well, uh, different ways that stewardship is going to be exhibited. I had uh, an uncle who had a church in Chicago. All my uncles are ministers, but I had one church in Chicago, and he had a doctor in his congregation who um, didn't give the, that much money to the church, but every Friday he moved his entire practice to the church and uh, gave free consultation to anybody in the church or in the neighborhood. He didn't do surgery in the parish hall or whatever, but... Um, it was he he was losing income for one day of the week his staff was there and you can't believe the number of people who joined the church because of the care and concern that was exhibited there for the people in the community and the congregation uh, different ways different things that people do um, he also gave but not like uh, some who might give a lot more, but that was a tremendous sacrifice of what he was able to offer. I've often thought about him in terms of the uh, mission of Doctors Without Borders, who will be going places in the world to give their talents as well as preach and uh, share with people. There's a second thing that I need to clarify, and that is because most of our material will come from the Old Testament. 
Uh, it's important that people in the church know how to interpret the Old Testament as Christians. Um, I often run into folks who will say, well, you know, I would obey or do that, but that's Old Testament. You know, I actually was in a church not too long ago. They said they didn't want to even use the word worship because it's not a New Testament word. Well, it's not an Old Testament word either. It never shows up in the Bible. We have an English word, worship, but the Hebrew word means to bow down. So there isn't technically any one word that is that. But that's, I think, a misunderstanding of the Scripture. There are definitely things in the Old Testament that do not apply to us. And I think the way to realize the differences and the continuity is when you're reading the Old Testament to understand that the whether it's a law or whether it's an event, what is being revealed about the nature of God is timeless and applicable. That's why Paul says it's all profitable for instruction in righteousness. But the regulations are going to be limited to the Israelite experience. Uh, You still are supposed to do everything to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink. The law just laid out some regulations of what you could eat and what you could drink. Uh, for Israel. We're living on a different level, but what it reveals is still applicable. And there are principles of stewardship that are going to be timeless, yet we don't quite do it the same way the Israelites did. You might have a principle of stewardship today, but you're not going to bring all your little woolly sheep into the sanctuary to give them to the Lord and sacrifice them. That's, That's the Old Testament regulation. But they still had to bring the best and make it as a gift to God, and we do too. There's another thing that I think has to be kept in mind, and it's it's a bigger subject that needs to be addressed in the church. There's a lot of confusion today between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. And justification usually wins out, because basically what is being taught so frequently around the country is that because Christ died for us, and we have been set free from the punishment for sin. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what we do. Uh, Christ said, be perfect. Well, we don't have to because he was perfect for us. Uh, That's a real confusion of doctrines. Uh, The doctrine of sanctification says that now that you are a believer and a member of the family and the household of God, God expects your service, your obedience, your faithfulness. And so you're going to do works of righteousness, not in order to be justified, because that's the grace, but in order to be useful to God, to be blessed by God, and eventually to be rewarded for your good works in glory. And so when you're dealing with passages like we're going to deal with today, we're in the realm of sanctification. Nobody ever kept the law in order to be saved. They were already redeemed because they had come out of Egypt by the blood and were the people of God. No one ever was redeemed by making an animal sacrifice. That was a thanksgiving offering. And nobody was ever redeemed by giving a lot of money to the sanctuary. uh, Because those were parts of their spiritual service now that they are the people of God. And so obedience and righteous acts are important in our life today. And we especially, who are believers in Christ, do it out of thanksgiving for the grace of God. So we have justification, which by Christ's death we are declared to be righteous. And we have the doctrine of sanctification, which means now by the assistance of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to live in a way that will be pleasing to God and useful for His service. That involves stewardship. 
So just to clarify those things, so you know, if on the way, um, you're looking at passages in the Bible, and you have to be very careful how you read them. A young man comes to Christ, and he wants to know what he should do to be saved. He, literally, he says, what big things should I do to be saved? Implying he's already kept all the law, so now what is it that will nudge me over? And he's very wealthy, and Jesus, Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. Well, that is not the gospel. That would be salvation by payment. And uh, we know that Christ wasn't really doing it for that purpose. He was trying to show this man he was not righteous. He thought he was righteous. He thought he kept the law, but he was selfish. And the man walked away sad because he had a lot of money. The gospel is very clear. It's by faith and it's by grace. So what Jesus is doing is something else. But if you teach that, that giving everything to the poor is what you must do in order to be saved. That's an example of mixing justification and sanctification. Uh, but Jesus in the Gospels is trying to get people to realize they're sinners before he can show them how there is salvation. And a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't want to say they were sinners. The poor people were the sinners, otherwise they wouldn't be poor. Um, they picked that up from the friends of Job. Well, what I've done here is I've laid out five uh, principles that if you're studying this thoroughly, you need to keep them in the back of your mind. And their principles, really, this is the kind of material that should be expounded to the entire congregation from those who are in authority in the church, because uh, otherwise you end up speaking to the choir or a small group or whatever. But this is something that every Christian really ought to be confronted with. Uh, in in their spiritual development. The first one is the very obvious one, the principle of ownership. What do you have that you earned? What do you have that you built up in your own strength? Well, there's a few passages here, and I'm going to not turn all of them, but I want to turn to a few of them. And uh, the first one we use quite a bit, actually, in the life of the church, although, like so many things in our time-constrained liturgy, <laughs> we rattle through it before people have an idea where we are on the page. But this one needs to be thought of quite a bit. It's in First Chronicles 29, and uh, it's David's prayer. And in the prayer, yours, O Lord, verse 11, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over it all. And then in verse 14, Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Uh, some people begin to feel a little bit proud of themselves because they made this generous offering. The way the rabbis describe it, I think, is very helpful. When you give to the Lord, they draw the picture of a little girl going out into her mother's flower garden picking a bouquet of flowers and bringing them in and giving them to her mother as a birthday present. That's what it's all about. It's not yours to begin with. It belongs to God. And all you're doing by the this principle of giving to God is acknowledging that he gave to you and he gave you the means by which you will give to him. Now, in the Israelite world, they did things a little differently. Um, they had poor people who didn't have anything to give to God. So they had the laws that if you had wealth, if you had fields, you were to leave your land 
open for gleaners. And they could come in and they could glean in your field, get food, get possessions. And they too then would have something to give to God out of what they had gleaned. It wasn't a handout. They had to go work for it. They had to go in the fields like the harvesters and they had to pick up and beat it out. And and then they would have something to give to God. We don't do that today. I don't think Home Depot would be pleased with my going in there and gleaning and trying to find something that I could use. We had some Seventh-day Adventist friends in California when I grew up there, and they had orange fields and strawberry fields and whatever. And uh, I said to one of my friends in a Seventh-day Adventist family, I said, I'm kind of poor, so I'm coming in to glean. (laughs) He said, we don't do that. Well, there's a limit to what uh, people will do under the law, I guess. But uh, in the New Testament world, it's a little different because in the church, the church is supposed to give to the people who are in need and poor uh, as opposed to letting them come in the field and glean because we don't have an economic system like Israel had. There's a sermon in Deuteronomy 8. I've often wished sometimes when I've listened to sermons that somebody would just read this instead of try to preach a sermon because this is really a very powerful little sermon. It's a sermon by Moses. You'll recognize lines out of it. He's speaking to the Israelites as they're ready to come into the land. And uh, he tells them, I'll just read a couple of verses out of it. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Then he says in verse 6, Observe the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, springs flowing in the valleys, hills, land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce. You will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. All a gift of God. He was giving it to the people. They were going to have a good place to live. But he warns them, don't forget God. Because if you do, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Then he says in verse 17, you may say to yourself, this is after they settle in the land, they build their barns, they have their crops and their flocks. Verse 17, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. So no one could even take pride and say, well, I earned this or I worked this or I developed this. No, God gave you the ability and the brains and the wisdom to do it. So when the Israelites and the New Testament, especially as in James, makes it very clear, every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father who delights to give good gifts, then we must acknowledge what is there that we have, what is there that we are that didn't come from God? Well, nothing. And if we hold back and say, this is mine, or I'm not going to do this, we are denying a fundamental truth of the faith. Uh, God wants us to have good things. He wants to bless us. But he also wants us to acknowledge in a very clear and tangible way that it is a gift. Uh, that we have been blessed. Then there's the principle of appropriateness. What is appropriate to God? And here the basic idea is what you give to someone, especially God, will determine what 
you think of that person. Um, you can think in terms of gifts that you received. I don't know about you, but sometimes within our family, um, not the most appealing gifts. Uh, they felt they had to do something, but they weren't going to waste any money. You know, this is not not a very appealing thing. We hope somebody doesn't give his or her spouse uh, this for a wedding anniversary or whatever. It will not be well received because our gifts do speak for what we think. And uh, a lot of times we, uh, we, we can see this revealed. The first case comes up in Genesis 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Very familiar. The setting for the story for the murder is, uh, for the uh, worship uh, setting is a gift, sacrifices, comes at the end of the year. And each of them, Cain and Abel, are supposed to bring a thank gift to the Lord. And it's very subtle. You have to read it very carefully. But the Israelites wouldn't have missed it because they had the law also to read that told them this. Cain brings a sacrifice. It's just some of the fruit from the ground. That's all it says. But it says, Abel brought from the fattest of the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn, if you've got a flock, a bunch of sheep, whatever, you really have to watch for which is going to be the firstborn. Uh, because they start all over the springtime being born, and how are you going to remember which is the first? If your mind is set that the first belongs to God, you watch for it. Same with a field. If you've got a harvest growing and you will know the first has to go to God, then you, um, you will tag that or fence it off. But it also has to be fat. It has to be the best. It has to be healthy. You can't bring to God something that's crummy. There was a law in Israel for fruit trees. When you plant a fruit tree, according to uh, the law, it said that you could not eat the fruit of that tree in the first two years. Uh, for the simple reason is the fruit isn't any good, but also the principle was the, f the first fruit has to go to God. But if the first fruit isn't any good, you can't give it to God. So you wait till the third year when the fruit will be good. But now you can't have it because while it's the first, it's also the best. It goes to God. Then in the fourth year, you can have your own fruit. But it was a way of reminding them of the appropriateness of what you give to God. Very simply, he gets the first and he gets the best. Anything else is an affront to his uh, value and to his law. Now, this was a major problem in Malachi. If you read Malachi chapter 1... It's a sermon that the prophet is going to give. It's very interesting in the history of Israel. Uh, when the Israelites came back from captivity, they were never again idolaters. That was purged out of them in Babylon. Uh, what came in was kind of worse. Uh, Self-righteous, selfishness, legalism, whatever else. So Malachi preaches a sermon in chapter 1 against them because they are dishonoring God and, and they are treating him with contempt. Well, they would like to know what he's talking about. And he makes it very clear that when they are trying to please God, they bring the crippled, diseased, and blind animals and give them to the Lord. Um, I guess the thinking was anything is good enough for God, he's just going to burn them up anyway. So, you know, we can't sell this animal in the market, we can't eat it, throw it on the altar, it's dedicated. It's kind of like 
we grew up with the problem of the missionary barrel. I don't know if you ever went through that phase, but we'd always have a barrel in the church for things that you want to send to the missionaries. It was junk. It was stuff that you were actually cleaning your closet or getting rid of old shoes or whatever. And in fact, there was one time they had an earthquake in Guatemala and people were sending all kinds of clothing. Missionaries had to write back and say, send us decent things. We have to throw out most of this. It uh, should be the best. should be something good. But God is saying, and he did it with the laws of the tithes and the offerings. If you bring a sacrifice to God, it has to be the firstborn animal. It has to be healthy. It can't be they can't be just born because a lot of people would say, well, here it's the firstborn and it's healthy. It's only six weeks old, but let's give it to God. No, he's got to fatten it up. You got to you got to invest something in this to make sure that it's a decent animal. It's got to be without blemish. It has to be perfect. Uh, so whether it's firstborn fruit or firstborn animals or whatever it is, God gets the best and He gets the first. That's the standard. Now, there's a principle behind this that's taught in both Testaments, but the clear example will be from Romans 12, but also if you wanted to check further in um, Psalm 40 and in its quotation in Hebrews 10. In Psalm 40, the individuals say to the Lord is a dedication, a body you have prepared for me. This is going to be applied to Christ in Hebrews. But for the Israelite, God has prepared me with a body, has given me my life, and here I am coming to the sanctuary. Uh, to I delight to do his will. It was a great delight to please God, to go out of his way, because he was, I am the way you made me. I have what you have given to me. I have to now show in my service that I acknowledge this, and it's going to be honoring to you. That's why Paul will say in Romans to present yourself a living sacrifice the first and fundamental gift that you give to God before anything monetary or anything in your time is yourself. If he just has your money, he doesn't really have what he wants. He wants the person. And with that, he will have what he needs for other things. Remember the passage where they want to know, testing Jesus, should I pay taxes or not? And he asked them to bring a coin. So they bring the coin and he wants to know whose image is on it. They say, well, it's Caesar's image. And he gives them the little equation, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay, we've got a coin which has Caesar's image. Fine, pay your taxes. But where do you find the image of God? Well, that's you. Uh, Pay your taxes to the government, but give your life to God. That's what he's saying. That's where the image of God is. He owns you, made you, redeemed you. You owe him your life. And if he has your life, he'll have your stewardship. So that's a very important emphasis. Now, the principle, the third one, is proportionate giving. God didn't expect people to give everything back to God. Some people did, were very spiritual, but it was always a proportion. Now, if you think that giving a simple 10% to the Lord is all that really is required, um, you're not quite familiar with what tithing is all about in the Old Testament. Just to say, if you want to go back under the Old Testament system and be a tither, just as long as you know, that's fine. The church would welcome that, Uh, just as long as you know what it costs you. First of all, you would have to give every year. The priests do. It's a wave offering. It's either 2% or 10%. We'll let you off easy. Say it's 2%. Then you're going to bring the general tithe. 
And then you're going to bring a second tithe, which has to be spent in Jerusalem. And every other year, there's a third tithe. So there are three tithes that you give over the period of the year. So you're really talking about 27% with the priest due, pretty close to 30%. But that doesn't include the offerings. You also have to bring the offerings, which would be the animals. And this is quite a big expense if you're bringing three animals every time you go up to Jerusalem, which would be three times a year, and you're a middle-income family. Uh, Then on top of that, if you sin, (laughs) in the meantime, there will be monetary charges plus 20% surcharge if it's a monetary sin that the priest will uh, add kind of like the IRS does, you know, the fifth part was going to be added to whatever you owe. Um, And then on top of that, every seventh year you can't work. So you're not going to have any income in the Sabbath year. So you've got to factor in how I'm going to stretch six years income over seven years. Same with the Jubilee. And then there's the corners. Uh, All the law says is you leave the corners of your field for the poor to come in and glean. It doesn't tell you how big the corner is. That depends how spiritual you are. Uh, if you are really not very spiritual and don't want anybody in there gleaning, corner could be a square yard, uh, satisfying the letter of the law. But God is saying, no, the spirit of the law. So see Boaz, he's got all these people in there gleaning as well as the harvesters, and he's a very spiritual man. So they're all praying that God will bless him. Uh, if you start going down the list and adding all this up and calculating what it's going to cost you if you're under the law, And living righteously, it's going to be over 40, maybe 45% a year. But that's equivalent to taxes and charity and uh, donations and giving and taking care of the poor. It's a large part. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have that laid out as the standard. But we do have the principles that are still there. Paul reminds the church in Corinth that every week they're supposed to lay up Uh, an amount to give in accordance with what the Lord has prospered. That is a percentage. That is a proportion. I often tell people that if they've never given anything to the Lord, then they can start off kind of slow, but get in the habit of taking a proportion, a percentage, and giving that and trying to improve it each year. Uh, But Christians, they know everything belongs to God. They know it's not so much what they give, it's how they're going to use what God has given to them. And you do get some spiritual giants like Barnabas, who is filled by the Holy Spirit, and he gives his property and possessions to the apostles, and he'll enter into service. But you get the counterfoil to that in Acts chapter 5, where you get um, this couple who... uh, decide they want to be seen as generous, faithful people by the apostles. So they lie about what they have in their possessions and make a big donation. And you remember the apostle denounces that. It's a good thing that doesn't happen all the time, but it's a warning um, that God doesn't look too highly on people who lie to the Holy Spirit, present themselves as generous, and yet um, are not intending it at all. Uh, God is going to uh, provide for people. In the New Testament, your standards are different. In the Old Testament, you could say, well, six days I can work, those are mine. One day belongs to the Lord. The New Testament makes it very clear every day belongs to the Lord. He's not interested in one hour a week. He's interested in your whole life. 
Um, he's not interested in just 10%. He's interested in you and your whole life, your stewardship, your talents. And you can read in the Gospels how again and again Jesus is saying that that you invest what God has given to you for the glory, the talents, the abilities, the gifts, and all of that is going to be blessed by God. And so in the New Testament, yes, I think we can take the principle of the proportion um, it's not a problem if you want to move it up quickly to 45-50%. There is a man who was a very good businessman and he had great um, a great business working and he vowed to give 98% to the Lord. And he did. And he went bankrupt. But he founded a college and he founded a missionary organization and he established missionary fellowship aviation and uh, he didn't think he was bankrupt at all. Uh, he realized that the money that he gave, the what he invested, went where it should go. And uh, he never went hungry, but he didn't see that as a failure. I think sometimes we function according to the standards of the world, uh, but the standards of the world are very different. There's also the principle of the spirit, the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. And... Uh, one of the best examples of that is Philippians chapter 4, and you can look up the verses and read them. Philippians chapter 4, remember that was the church that was the most generous of all the churches. They gave more than they even had in order to help the ministry of the apostles, and uh, they, um, they were exemplary. All over the different churches, Paul could refer to the Philippian church and how generous they were. Uh, I think God uh, will do that at times. There are certain Christians that we would say have the gift of giving. That's a spiritual gift that goes beyond the normal. Everybody's supposed to give, but some give and give and give, and they don't even realize they're giving way out of proportion. They just know that's the natural thing that they do. Now, this would be for all kinds of purposes. Paul's ministry, the church, the expanse of the church. They took up collections for the poor in Jerusalem. Paul, I don't know if this is very flattering for people in ministry, but Paul draws the principle, you're not supposed to muzzle the ox while it's threshing. That means that the uh, people who minister can be provided for out of the funds that come in. That's one of the things that the tithes did in the Old Testament. They went to the priestly families for their food, their provisions. Because remember, in Israel, one-twelfth of the population is dependent upon the tithes and the offerings. That's the tribe of Levi with its priests. Um, however, there is a spirit in which people who are devout will give their money. Uh, they do it with humility. Uh, not like the Pharisees, Jesus said, who love to sound the trumpet and let everybody know that they are giving a bunch. We don't really know what that means. It's possible that there was a receptacle in the entranceway made out of some kind of metal and it would be very easy to come in and just throw a handful of coin in there and everybody in the room would hear this noise and look around to see who was giving so much coins to the Lord. Uh, I don't think they went down the street with actual instruments sounding a trumpet and saying, here I am and I'm one of the generous people. Uh, no, it's humility. And it isn't necessarily the amount that is given, it's the spirit that God looks at. We learned that from the story of the widow giving her might. She gave more by giving the mites, which were almost a worthless coin, 
not today, they'll charge you 30 bucks for one. But uh, in the first century, that's all she had. She gave to the Lord. And um, for that, God said that was more than what the other people gave because it came out of her need, not out of her surplus. And uh, I think that's what we mean by sacrificial giving. Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with making a lot of noise about what they give. I know in my father's church, he worked out a system uh, that he didn't know who gave any of the money. He didn't want to know. He said that would probably color his uh, dealings with people, and he didn't think it would, but he didn't want to lay a chance. So he worked out a whole numerical system where only one person knew, and he happened to be an accountant in the church, But um, a lot of people don't like to do it on the record. Um, We just were reminded of that in our faculty meeting the other day. One woman wanted to give, but she wanted to do it according to the principle of Matthew 6, where it was done in secret, and the Father in heaven would know, and nobody else would know. Um, I remember listening to Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, and she said she will give generously, but she didn't want to pledge because she didn't know if she would ever default on it. And to default on a pledge is to break your vow. In the Old Testament, that's a death penalty. So um, a lot of people have different feelings. We have to we have to recognize their convictions. Um, they also today have something that they didn't have in Israel. Where else is the widow going to give her might? There's only one temple. There's only one place. And I mean, Jesus could have said, don't give your money here. You know, they're just going to put another golden dome on the building. But today, people have choices. And they like to know that their money is counting for something. And I think when the church wants to raise support, it has to make it clear to people how the money is going to be used and that it's necessary and valuable. Too many other people out there, ministries, missionary movements, churches, are in desperate need and people feel like their money might make a difference there. And if you, we had a church in Dallas that I belong to, a big, big church, and they decided, uh, for $8 million, they're going to put a new dome on the rotunda. $8 million uh, for a rotunda. Uh, nothing wrong with the earlier foyer. And an awful lot of people just decided they weren't going to give to that. Um, they weren't disloyal to the church. They just felt that money was a lot of money given away for the wrong purpose. So I think when you talk to people and present stewardship to people, it's this is what we're doing, and this is what what we need, and this is the needs we're, that we're meeting in the community, because we know that money is um, rare these days, and people want to make sure it counts. One of the problems of teaching at the seminary is I'm on everybody's missionary list that graduates. You know, they all are out there with ministries. They send me their missionary fundraising money. So I often wonder, do I give every one of them a dollar, or do I invest in one, or whatever is going on? The last one you can think about yourself, and that's the principle of promised blessings. It's very common today for television preachers, especially the prosperity people, to say that it's, well, they don't say this, but it's kind of like investing in the stock market. You know, if you give this money, God will give you back a hundredfold or whatever else. He may not. The blessing that God promises is that he'll take care of you. And he'll bless you in glory, in record with your works. But it doesn't mean that what you give is going to be given back to you financially. Uh, He may do that, uh, but he may not. So what we know is that people who sow sparingly, Paul says, 
will be blessed sparingly. It's proportional. Obedience is rewarded with God's gracious gifts, but they may be more than just a financial return. I think many people would rather see their money that they give lead to conversion of many people rather than just that they will get more money back for what they gave, because that's the spiritual mind that is at work. So I think the principles that come through are very clear in the Old and the New Testament. You, to give to the Lord means you've committed your life to the Lord. It also means that you're going to act by faith, not by calculation. You give first, trusting the Lord will provide. That's the theme of Genesis 22. God is supposed to, he calls Abram to sacrifice his son Isaac. He doesn't tell him and, you know, just go through the motions and I'll make sure you have the right, the son back. No, he has to go and and act. But he's got the promise, and it's the theme of the chapter, the Lord will provide. So people were called to go up to Israel to give their gifts to God, trusting that the Lord will provide We've lost that principle of faith, and I think it has to be put back in there. When I first started teaching in a seminary, I was given a contract, not a very interesting one, but I was given a contract, and what was told to me in the contract is, this is what you'll get paid if the money comes in. (laughs) doesn't come in, you don't get paid. Well, we attended prayer meetings. Uh, We were there to... uh, to call on the Lord because it it was just that kind of a thing. But nowadays, people, people I got some friends who went in the mission field. They had to guarantee $50,000 income a year. They couldn't go to the mission field. That's not quite the same, but I can see why they're doing it. So times have changed, but we still have the same fundamental principles. By faith, you give to the Lord, trusting he's going to provide your needs. And you do it because everything you are belongs to him. And it's all a gift from God in the first place. And uh, then you watch him use it to bless people with it. Thank you.